I remember one time early on in my marriage, actually, we weren't even married yet. I think we were engaged, my wife, Amy, and I, and we had this situation where we had taken both of our cars to the car wash, and we were washing cars together, and we started on hers, and then we washed mine, and this moment came when we were washing my car, and, uh, you know, we were, I think we were vacuuming or something, and Amy was vacuuming under the, the car mats, and I was, like, wiping down the steering wheel. I'm on the driver's side. She's on the passenger side, and she started doing it in a way that I wouldn't do it, you know? I don't really know what it was, um, but I, what I remember is that I just asked her, probably loudly, because the vacuum was on, you know, I asked her, like, hey, could you not do it that way? And I'll never forget this moment, because really, in my mind, I thought I was just asking loudly, and she, like, put the vacuum down and looked at me and was like, why are you yelling at me? And I remember being like, I'm, I, she heard yelling, I heard effective communication, you know? Like, there was this total, this total moment where we just missed each other, and it was a silly little moment, but man, it opened up the door for us having this long conversation later about understanding how we communicate and how we talk to each other. You know, we began to realize that, oh man, she comes from a totally different family system than I do. Like in her family, people don't, you don't raise your voice, you don't yell at all. Like I come from kind of a loud family, like we just get loud. If you've ever met my son Torin, you know, it just runs in our blood, like we just get loud, you know? And like, this was just part, I thought I was just communicating and I realized what she heard was yelling and it made her wanna shut down and like withdraw from me. And we both had to start looking at, okay, how can we adjust what it is that has shaped our understanding of who we are and how we function together? Because we realized, man, I come from totally different families. Her family deals with things one way, mine another. And you know, I find that that's so true about all of us as we interact with other people. You know, we just run into things that we see people handling things so differently than we would, and our temptation so often is to go, man, why in the world would you do that? And I've found there's this simple question that I've just kind of tucked away in the back of my mind that I use all the time when I'm interacting with people that are different than me. In fact, we've used this in our marriage so much. We use this with our kids. We've used this with other people. But the question's really simple. It is, what makes this make sense? Because there's a good chance that there's something that makes it make sense for why the person is responding the way they were. My wife responded to my loudness for a reason. It made sense. I talked loudly for a reason. It made sense. The people that you see in your life that are doing things way different than you with different opinions, probably if you took some time to understand what makes it make sense, there'd be a much more gracious response to what they're doing. You know, we have, a, we have these worldviews that we operate off of. You know, our worldview is, is really simply put, it's our perception of the world around us and what makes it work, but also our perception of ourself and our place in that world and how we find ourselves there and how we interact with it. And man, your worldview is shaped by all these different factors that come together. It's shaped by the culture that you grow up in. It's shaped by the language that you speak. It's shaped largely by your family of origin. Things like, man, how did your family deal with conflict? How did your family show affection? How did your family listen? Did they do any of these things? You know, all those things shape our worldview and our understanding. It is shaped by your personal experiences. It is shaped by your religious experiences, your religious background. All these pieces come together and they begin to shape our perception of the world and of ourselves. And so often when we see somebody doing something different than us, it's because they've got all these different pieces. Their perception is different than our own perception. You know, and I, I think in large part, 
I think we all kind of know this more, maybe now than we ever have. Like we live in the age where everybody's going, what makes me me? I'm gonna take the Enneagram and Strength Finders and Myers-Briggs. I'm gonna take all these things to try to figure out what makes me me. Like, and, and all of us are in therapy trying to figure out our family of origin issues, right? Like everybody's trying to find the puzzle, what has put us together. I think we know this about ourselves. But sometimes I wonder, you know, have we ever wondered like, all these factors that have shaped us, all these things that have made me, me, that have come together to shape my worldview, do I ever pause to go, how have those factors shaped or influenced the way I perceive of God? How have those things that have so shaped my view of myself and my view of the world, how have they shaped the way I view God? Have you ever paused to ask, why do I, why do I think that thing about God? Or maybe more importantly, have you ever paused to ask, like, why am I assuming that this thought I've had about God is actually true? Why am I assuming that these things that I believe about God are the truth about who he is? Now, I'm not trying to open Pandora's box here and send us into this world of like total deconstruction of everything you've ever thought about God. But guys, what I, what I want us to understand is, man, it is so important for us to get an accurate view and understanding of who God is. We are... We're jumping into a new series starting today, and the series is called, it's really simple, it's God is dot, dot, dot. And guys, for the rest of the fall, we are gonna be trying to explore the indescribable character of who God is, the God of the Bible. Like, who is he and what is he like? And this morning, we just wanna ask the question, like, why? Why, why are we doing this? Why are we gonna take the next couple of months to try to ground ourselves in understanding who God is and what he's like? Why does it really matter? You know, I would say that it's actually, it is the most important thing we could be doing right now. And I'm gonna unpack several, I'm gonna un unpack several reasons for why I think, I think it is the most important thing we could be doing right now. I love the way A.W. Tozer put it. He was a writer and author in the 20th century, and this is, he has this great quote at the beginning, there's a book called Knowledge of the Holy, and he starts the book with this quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just look at, look at that quote, let it sink in, what comes into your mind when you think about God, he's saying you know, the same thing, our perception of God, what comes into your mind when you think, the most important thing about you, it's a, a massive statement. And he'll go on in the first chapter of their book, you know, after he throws that quote out there, it's like the way he starts the book and the rest of the book is just a hard-hitting thing after hard-hitting thing. But here's one of the things he says. He says, by some law of the human soul, we tend to move toward our mental image of God. Why is it the most important thing about us? He says, man, there's just some law of the human nature is that we tend to gravitate towards whatever our mental image of God is. I love the way, you know, uh, contemporary pastor and author, John Mark Comer, a lot of you are familiar with him, listen to him, read some of his books. He says it this way, if you think of God as an angry tyrant in the sky, that will shape you. If you think of God as progressive, educated in the West, tolerant, and all about love, that will also shape you. If you think about God as a cosmic life coach there to make you happy and help you find fulfillment, that will shape you. No matter what your perception of God, it will shape you profoundly. And this is not just for those who claim to be followers of Jesus, this is for all of us, whether you are Christian 
or whether you're trying to figure out what you believe about God, your assumptions and beliefs about what God is like or what he isn't like or whether or not he even exists, they will shape your life profoundly. All of us will worship something. And we will all move, the gravitational pull of our hearts will be towards that thing that we worship. Some of us will worship money and we will be drawn to that thing. Some of us will worship success or notoriety. Some of us will worship relationships. Some of us, we will worship so many things, whether we believe in God or not, our perception of what the most important thing is in the world will draw us towards it. It will impact the way you live your life and the way you prioritize everything in your life. What comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. You know, we see this played out really well in the life of this guy named David. David was a king of the Israelites in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He was the, the greatest king Israel ever knew. He was kind of the, the, the gold standard. Um, and, uh, you know, David loved the Lord, sought the Lord, and he had, he had a crazy life. He, he was a warrior. He was a king. He was also a poet and a singer and a shepherd. I mean, the dude did all these kind of different things. And you know, there's this moment, he penned a lot of what we call the Psalms in the Old Testament, this collection of prayers and songs. And Psalm 27 is one of my favorite. It's one of the ones that we look at uh, quite often. And there's this moment, hold on, don't put it up yet, just yet, Martin. There's this moment, there's this moment where David is gonna write some things in Psalm 27. And there's different, different opinions on when he wrote this. You know, some believe that David wrote this uh, early in his life, before he even ascended to the throne in a moment where his parents had died and everybody was turning on him. The king that had loved him, that he ended up succeeding, he, this king wanted to kill him, was trying to murder him, chasing him through the desert. You know, it was just this incredibly hard moment in his life. And some think that he wrote it later in his life when he'd been king for a while, and yet still he found himself surrounded by enemies, other nations that wanted to crush him. Even his own son raised up a rebellion against him. See, David had all these moments that were so hard, so pressing, so trying in his life. And I don't know what your hardest moment has been like, what the hardest moment in your life has been. We all, we all will face them. You know, I, don't, I don't know maybe if, if the hardest moment in your life, maybe it was that time you, you lost your job totally unexpectedly. You know, I, I, I relate to that. I remember you know, my wife and I, we, we were living in another country at one point trying to plant a church, and I remember being in a moment where we realized the church we were trying to plant, the community we were trying to grow was just imploding on itself, and nothing was going the way we wanted it to, and after five years, we had to make the choice to shut it all down. And I remember just being like, God, what? Where are you? It's a hard moment. Maybe, maybe it was a moment in your life where you lost a pregnancy. Man, I know the pain of that. We had a season in our life in between, after our second son was born where we wanted to have more kids and we tried and we had three miscarriages just back to back. Two of them extremely traumatic. Ended up with my wife in the hospital. It's hard moments where you just feel the pressure of life. Maybe it was a moment in your life where you lost a relationship something that you thought was gonna go on forever in your life and it felt like it just got pulled away from you. Maybe it was a season of confusion. Maybe it was a season where you're just trying to figure out who you are, what you believe, and nothing seemed to make sense. Maybe for some of you, this last year and a half has been the hardest moment of your life. A season where it seems like everything that was normal that we relied on has been shaken and taken away. I, I don't know what the hardest moment in your life has been. 
But I think an important question to ask is, man, when that hard moment comes, if you could ask the Lord for one thing, what would it have been? If you're in that hard moment right now, what is it that you're asking? If you knew that you could ask God one thing and you knew it was that moment where you could get him to answer that prayer, what would the prayer be? And it is shocking when we look at this man, David, who finds himself in one of the hardest moments of his life of what he asks God to do. Look in Psalm 27, verse four. This is what he writes. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He says, man, one thing I ask, this is all I want, is that I can just dwell where God is, that I can just gaze upon his beauty, that I can seek his face, God. People are trying to murder me. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to kick me off the throne. My parents have died. My son is against me. And God, all I really want is to be able to see you and gaze upon the beauty of your face. Man, there is something there's something that David knew that I think sometimes I don't know. Man, what did, what did David know about this God that I don't know? Because I know in my hardest moments, this is not my natural tendency to want to go, man, one thing I want, one thing I want, God, is just to sit and look at you. God, I just want to sit and be with you. I think this is sometimes why, if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about the, the common cultural conception of heaven, we go, man, I, I don't even know if I want that. <laughs> A place where I just go and I, you know, the, the misconception, I just go and sit on a cloud and look at God and sing how great is your love all day long and that's all I do. Like, man, I don't, I don't know if I want that. But man, David, there was something that he knew about God that just made him go, man, I want you, God. I'm just gonna tell you, man, this prayer, it enabled David to pray sincerely the one thing he wanted. It grounded him. It anchored him. It made him make sense of everything that was going on around him. He's like, I just want this one thing. I just want to fix my eyes on this God. And I'm just telling you, I want to know that God. I want to know that God. Because anything else just fails when life comes at me with all of its force. I want to know that God. And guys, I'm just telling you, I want our church, I want you to know that God. I want you to know him. I don't wanna talk about him. I don't wanna just tell stories or give you cute little uh, things to try to apply. No, I, I want you to know the glorious God. We wanna know him because when you know him, all the things that life can throw at you, they pale in comparison with the glory of being able to fix your eyes on him. This is our desire to know God. And I'm just gonna tell you, you know, as the pressure mounts in our culture and in the world, our view of God will determine whether or not we keep moving towards him or whether we fall away. Guys, have you felt the pressure in our world? Have you felt it? I mean, it's, it's, it's shaking, there's so much. It's like, you know, I, I looked at the headlines and it was interesting, it didn't take very long. I, I just did one thing, I went and looked at the headlines and this was the headline that I found. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued a dire warning 
that the world is moving in the wrong direction and faces a, quote, pivotal moment where continuing business as usual could lead to a breakdown of global order and a future of perpetual crisis. Whew, I gotta love reading the headlines. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Antonio. Like, that is exactly how I wanted to start my day. But guys, this is everywhere. You open, you, you, you turn on your computer, you, 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 go to, you, know, you go to Google News, Yahoo News, you go to AP News, you go to whatever news you wanna to go to and it seems like it's just being screamed at us. Guys, something's wrong. There's a shaking that is happening in our world. Guys, Jesus talked about this. He talked about it. And he, he talked about it in no uncertain terms. He says, man, there's gonna come times where things just get harder, things get harder. He talks about this in Matthew 24, and there's this one place where he says this. He goes, listen, there's a time coming that due to the increase of wickedness in the world, the love of most will grow cold. Guys, this should sober us. It should make us go, oh man, I can't just play church. I can't just have a surface like kind of faith where I just jump through the hoops I need to be like David, where I understand this glorious God, that he's the one thing, he's the only thing I wanna know, the only one I wanna seek. I need him to awaken that in my heart because I do not want to be among the most whose love grows cold. I don't want you to be among the most whose love grows cold. I pour my heart out on your behalf. I pray for you, my church family, that God will sustain us and give us hope and give us a glimpse of his glory so that we will have the courage to keep moving forward when the world around us seems to be shaking. But we've got to have a clear picture of who God is and what he's like. And guys, here's, here's the good news. The good news is that God wants to be known. Do you know that? Do you know that he wants to be known by you? And we're gonna just kind of plant that here as the anchor that we're gonna come back to, but we've got to address the bad news as well. The bad news is that there are a thousand competing narratives that are shaping our perception of who God is and what he's like. You know, I wonder, I wish, I wish we were just sitting in my living room right now and we could have like a discussion because I would love for us to be able to just answer, answer this question. You know, if, if, all, if you were trying to figure out who God was, what his character's like, who he is, what he cares about, what he's passionate about, if all you had to go off of was culture, now maybe that's, and I'll let you pick, like you can, you can pick American culture in general, just pop culture. You can pick Christian subculture. Uh, you can pick the culture at the university where you go to school, whatever it is. If all you had to go off of was the cultural narratives about God, how would you complete this sentence? God is fill in the blank. If all you had to go off of was culture. You know, I, I, I hear examples of this all the time, and when I, when I just read what's happening in our world, a, a common thing I hear in popular culture, sometimes labeled as Christian, what I hear is, you know, God is ultimately just interested in you being happy and you being fulfilled and being true to yourself. That is a narrative that is out there, shaped by our culture. Is it true? How do we know and how do we not know? Uh, you could do this again. Maybe, maybe you go, hey, let's not do culture. Let's just do family or your relationships. If all you had to go by, you didn't have the Bible, you didn't have, all you had to go by was your family, your relationships, and you had to complete the sentence, God is fill in the blank. What would you put there? How would you describe him? If all you had to go by was your personal experiences, 
the hard things you've walked through, the pain that you've felt, the good things you've been through, how would you describe who God is? Guys, we are swimming in a swirling sea of narratives that are shaping our perception of who God is. And if we're not careful, it can start to feel pretty hopeless. This is why we see deconstruction just so prevalent in our culture right now, where everybody's just going, I just gotta deconstruct everything that I know about God. And if you're not careful as you're deconstructing, you get washed up in the swirl of thousands of narratives. And if you don't have an anchor to hold on to, it is hopeless. It'll be totally up to you and your opinion and what you think matters the most. But you see, God, we have this, this anchor. It's what I said earlier. God wants to be known by us. We're gonna build this entire teaching series off of the most quoted verse throughout the Bible. It is the, it is the verse that the Bible quotes of itself the most times. I don't know how to say that more clearly. <laughs> This verse that we're gonna look at is mentioned more than any other verse throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And we're gonna use that to anchor us as we start asking these questions of who is God? God is what? What is he like? How do we capture his indescribable character? The verse is found in Exodus chapter 34. If you wanna turn there, you can. I'm gonna talk about it just for a little bit before we read it. You know, the good news of this verse is that the God who created you, the God who knows you, he wants to be known by you. The God who created you, the God who knows you, he longs to be known by you. And he has been working to reveal his glory from the beginning of his story, even in the creation around us. And this verse we're gonna read is this moment where he literally reveals himself for who he is. Now, a little context here. We're gonna dive into this verse a lot over the next coming weeks. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time unpacking all of the words that are here, but just so you can understand what's happening. This is this moment where the people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They've come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're learning how to relate to God who is holy. And there's this guy named Moses that's been leading them. And the Bible tells us that Moses had such a close, close friendship with God. You can be friends with God. Did you know that? Like he had this close friendship with God that he would talk to him as though talking face to face. And there's this moment where they've come out and Moses is pleading with the Lord to go with the Israelites. And he says this thing. He says, Lord, I want you to go with us. Will you go with us? He says, show me your glory. In chapter 33, he says, show me your glory. And then in verse 19 of chapter 33, it says, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Did you know God has a name? Do you know that God is not God's name? God has a name. And here's this beautiful moment in the history of humanity where God comes to this covenanted people, specifically through his servant Moses, and he goes, hey, I'm gonna reveal, I'm gonna proclaim my name to you. And it wasn't just a title he was giving him. It was this description of who he is, his presence, his character. So you jump to the next chapter and Moses finds himself up on the mountain and God passes in front of him. And this is what he says, Exodus 34, verse six. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, that's literally Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, 
rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the name that God reveals to Moses. And I know right now already some of you are going, man, why don't you just stop at the beginning of that verse? That was so much nicer. (laughs) Gracious, compassionate, loving, full of mercy. What? He will not leave the wicked unpunished? Judging? Like what? Why? Guys, if we want the full picture of God, remember, we can't let the swirling sea of narratives shape how we view him. This has got to be our anchor. If you want to understand who he is and what he's like, we can't shy away from the characteristics of God that make us uncomfortable because of our modern sensibilities. We've got to embrace him for all that he is and all of his glory. So for the next couple months, we're going to dive in verse by verse, word by word, unpack what this passage says about God and his character and his nature and who he is and what he's like. And my prayer is that he would get our hearts, that he would know us and that we would know him completely. We want the full picture, not just little pieces here and there, but the full picture of who God is. And so this, this, whole, this whole series is being built off of this chapter. We're going to go you know, por- portion by portion. And what we're going to see as we look at this is that there is a continual revelatory picture of God's character that is woven throughout the entire narrative of scriptures. We're going to be looking at how Jesus himself fulfilled so much of what God revealed about who he is to Moses on that mountain. And guys, we're going to just destroy, I just want to say it out front, there is this lie going out there that somehow Jesus is different from the God of the Old Testament. If you've heard that, I know it's out there. I know many of you probably wrestle with that. Man, why is Jesus, it's like this narrative that, you know, Jesus showed up to make up for the ground that was lost because of his angry drunk dad that just messed everything up in the old part of the story. Guys, that's not the narrative of Scripture. Jesus was the fullest and the best fulfillment. He is God in the flesh. And so as we try to unpack this statement about who God is, we're gonna be looking at the life of Jesus alongside this proclamation of who God says that he is so that we can get a total picture beginning to end of who God is and what he's like. This is what we're gonna jump into this fall. And we need it. We need an anchor for our souls right now. I know we all feel it. We all feel the shaking. Here's what I love about David. You know, he writes in Psalm 27, one thing I seek, one thing, that I could dwell in your house, I could gaze upon your beauty, that I could seek your face. This is all I want, God. And then he ends the psalm so beautifully. He goes on after that prayer, by the way, to just start naming how hard things are again. He's like naming all the hard stuff. And then he gets to the end and he says, man, one thing I know, this I know for certain, I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He knew, he understood, and no matter how hard things are right now, that God is near, that God is with me, I will see his goodness in this age before I die, I will see it. And that is our hope, and that's what we're longing for through this series. Now, to to kind of wrap up and kind of move us into a time of worship together, I want, to just, I want us to, to recognize one of the most tangible anchors that we have. We keep talking about anchors, you know, the swirling sea. I want us to look at one of the most tangible anchors that we have in the world right now. And unfortunately, we're living in a time where that anchor comes pre-wrapped with cellophane. And so it's not really, you know, it kind of feels kind of lame. But 
You know, the anchor is what we do every week in taking communion together. Guys, the reality is that God has gone to so many lengths to reveal the goodness of who he is by revealing himself to Moses and proclaiming his name. But ultimately, the best and the clearest revelation that we get of who God is and what he's like came when he took on human form and walked on this earth. That God came in the flesh. He laid down his life and he suffered all the way to the world and died and then conquered it all and rose victoriously again in resurrection power and he ascended to heaven and he is coming back. So when we take communion, this is an anchor. This is an anchor. So I want to invite everyone to stand. Go ahead and peel off that top little cellophane there and get the bread out. I want you to just hold it in front of you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray over us because one of the things that God just keeps convicting me of as I've thought about this series is that knowing him comes through revelation him revealing himself. And I could get up here, Dave could get up here, we could preach as many sermons as we want, but if we do not do this in partnership with the living spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for our hearts to completely know him. He wants us to know him so much that he came and did this, shed his blood, and then he poured out his presence, his Holy Spirit, so that our hearts can grasp who he is. So as we take communion this morning, it's this reminder, hey, he laid down his life, he shed his blood, but as I, I, I'm gonna pray over us that through his spirit, he would strengthen us to be able to fully grasp who he is. So listen to these words. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul as we get ready to break bread and take the cup together. I pray this over us. I pray, Lord, that out of your glorious riches, that you will strengthen us with power through your spirit and our innermost being, Lord, that the innermost part of who we are be strengthened by your spirit so that Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, our King, can dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in the love of Jesus, may have power together with all the people of Jesus to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. This love, we may know it, it surpasses all knowledge. Lord, would you fill us up with that love that we may be filled to all the fullness of your glory. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in Ethos Church and in the broader church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's take the cup and take the bread together.